Here we are, folks. Saturday afternoon, it's time again for the Elephant in the Room on WJAS, 1320 AM and Talk 99.1 FM. Boy, am I having a day here. Saturday, right? I can't even get the introduction right. Hey, I want to tell you, I'm sitting here in studio with my executive director, John Schneider, best executive director for the Republican Committee of Allegheny County, and our producer, again, dazzling Daryl Grandy. Daryl is always taking time out of his day, adjusting his schedule to meet ours. We can't thank him enough. Daryl, appreciate it. Guys, thanks for joining me in studio. Great. Thank you, Sam. You're, you got a lot of energy today. Daryl, did you just check out John? He just, he, John he just exceeded his quote. A yes. subject and a predicate. Yeah. <laughs> Nouns and verbs. Yeah. The whole huh. nine. Well, guys, I can't tell you how excited I am about the show today because we have on the phone special guest and one of our favorite guests, one of my favorite state representatives, State Representative Natalie Mihalik of the 40th Legislative House District. Natalie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Sam. I had no idea that Daryl was dazzling, so that's good Good to know. I appreciate you having me. I'm glad to be here and give you all an update. Well, listen, if you would have been able to attend, you would have been able to see he's all decked out in rhinestones. You know, right now, you know, oh, I mean, hey, can you, can you picture Sylvester Stallone in that movie with Dolly Parton? Right. was a rhinestone <laughs> cowboy. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's Daryl. No, I'm just kidding. But hey, no, really seriously, Natalie, thank you for taking time out of your day to join the show and to help educate our listeners on some of the things that are happening out there in Harrisburg. Okay. Um, Democrats have a one vote lead or one vote majority in the house. But yet they seem to think that it's like a 50-vote majority. So tell us a little bit about what's happening out there now and maybe share with our listeners a little bit about the current impasse in regards to the budget. Yeah, it's a, it's a one-seat majority, and they themselves refer to it as a humble majority, but they do not act that way. Um, so this is my fifth budget that I've been through in the Pennsylvania House, and this is much different uh, than in the last last four years, um, just by the fact that we are in the minority, uh, we're not driving the bus, and we're largely left in the dark on a lot of things. This budget, I think the biggest thing that I can say about it is a missed opportunity. And it's really a series of missed opportunities. With Republican leadership in the House, since I was elected in 2018, we've been able to max out the rainy day fund, $5 billion dollars. Now that the Democrats are in control, they actually want to spend that money. Um, So it's been a very difficult budget cycle. We're currently at an impasse. A letter from the Senate leadership went to House Democrat leadership just yesterday, basically saying, hey, the ball's in your court. We passed this budget. We sent it to you. You took out the language that was promised by your governor. um, And now, you know, we don't know what to do. So the ball's in, in the court of the House Democrats. And we're all just kind of sitting here waiting to see, you know, who's, who's going to blink first. I guess we're at a, a standoff, so to speak. But it has been a, a large missed opportunity with all of that money in reserves. We don't want to spend it. We do want to save it for a rainy day. Uh, revenues have been coming in higher than expected. Um, the governor's original budget proposal was 6% over last year's spend, which was a huge, huge spend, $45 billion budget. Um, we're looking at you know forty five point five billion. So there's a lot of work to be done, and it's not just the budget bill. Uh, the budget bill was you know passed from the House to the Senate, and that's sort of like the 
what are you going to spend? The how are you going to spend are all the code bills, and mm-hmm. none of those have even really started. Um, so we have a lot of work ahead of us, and we are past, I think, 11 days, 12 days. I don't know what day it is. I'm just like you. It's a Saturday. Um, we're almost two weeks past the budget deadline. Yeah, I, uh, for our listeners, many folks may not understand you know, how the budget process works, and you just did a great job explaining to them that the budget is what we're going to spend. You know, how we're going to spend it is in the fiscal codes or the enabling legislation that needs to be passed, okay? And, uh, you know, there's some challenges there, all right? Now, the governor, I really think that he hurt himself politically and shot himself in the foot when he backtracked, you know, and reneged on the deal that he had made with the Republicans in the state Senate in order to take and uh, claiming that he would veto the $100 million in Lifeline scholarships that had been negotiated and been put in the budget, you know, that he was okay with. I mean, his staff met with state Senate staff, right, and, and helped craft this language, and then he just rejects it. If, In, in my opinion, you know, uh, Shapiro is a very astute politician, okay? I mean, that that's that's what appears more important to him than anything else. But this was a really big fumble on his part. If he wanted to establish or to maintain credibility and he wasn't able to get Bradford, Matt Bradford, the majority leader in the House, to bring this bill up for a vote or to, to, to allow it to pass, what he could have done or should have done was he should have not only said he was going to veto or line item veto the $100 million scholarship, uh, lifeline scholarship funding, but also all of the other things that he had put in the Democrats wanted, okay, that were part of that compromise that he they had worked out with the uh, state Senate. I mean, that way here, at least he would have been a man of his word, but here he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. You know, he promises one thing, dangles it out there, supposedly as the leader of his party, you know, he can deliver, and Democrats in the House with only, a, like you said, a humble majority decide that they're going to wag they're the tail that's going to wag the dog and now this is where we're at and you have democrats that are demanding that uh senator kim ward and the republicans in the state senate hurry back to uh harrisburg so that they can sign things to to work on and i don't know if you saw there was an article in the pittsburgh post gazette this week um, Democrats want them to come back so they can sign this because they want to reauthorize the e-scooter plan. Okay, so they're worried about scooters. Well, we have tens of thousands of Pennsylvania students in underperforming schools, you know, with no help whatsoever along the way. I mean, these underperforming 15% of schools, uh, now they're like out of luck, okay? All because the Democrats are beholden the teachers' unions. I'm sorry for the rant, Natalie. What do you have to say on this? No, that's totally fine, Sam. And and you've hit the nail on the head and, and sort of encapsulated just the last few weeks that we've had in session as we're, you know, we were before the deadline, during the deadline, after the, the deadline, we're voting on dozens and dozens and dozens of bills that we know, you know, the Senate is probably not going to take up, at least not anytime soon, because we're focused on the budget. And, you know, none of that was, being talked about and you're right on these lifeline scholarships or now we changed the name to pass. Um, it, it is a true lifeline for students in these failing school districts. It's a hundred million dollars talking. And I understand that's a big chunk of money, but it's a $45 billion budget 
$100 million to save some of these Pennsylvania students. So it's failure in leadership, a failed governor to go back and on his campaign promise. And even as late as the last week in June, right prior to the budget deadline, he's on Fox News saying, yes, I support I support this wholeheartedly. Lifeline scholarships. We want to give every Pennsylvania student a chance. And then he's going to veto his own campaign promise. It doesn't it doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense. He looks bad. I think the Senate looks bad for negotiating this governor who was up to something else. And I don't know what that is. But the failure is really to the Pennsylvania students in these failing school Mm -hmm. districts. I mean, we we have failed them. Bottom line, all of us. And, And that's the frustrating thing. Look, I you know. I've been around this game here for a little bit, and you know I'm a bit of a policy wonk, so I pay attention to statistics. I try to look into things because I really wanted to deliver solutions. Okay, and and you get the Democrats who purport to be the party of the working man, the poor, and all of that, but yet all the statistics show us that if you are not able to receive a quality education, you're either being sentenced to poverty. Or in many cases, you know, uh, these folks, if you look at, at the inmates in our Bureau of Corrections, many of them lack a quality education, okay, or an education period. When you look at their scores you know, on math and reading tests, okay? So we're sentencing these kids to no, to a dismal future, and I just don't know how anyone can walk around and, and accept this when they have an opportunity to do something about it. I, I just It just boggles my mind. It's a shame. And I, you know, I I don't like being part of this system where we're constantly giving money to failing school districts. And then the next year they come back and they ask for more money and we give it to them. And then looking at this budget, so we have some of these one-time monies from the federal government, right? Mm -hmm. Once you spend that, once you, you know, say you're giving a school district, uh, you know, whatever it is, $10 million. Well, now they come and they want $10.5 million. You give it to them because you have this one-time surplus from the federal government. Well, the next year, they're going to come back and ask for 11. They're not going to go back down to 10. So you're perpetuating this year-after-year increase. And at a certain point, which would happen very soon, it becomes unsustainable without massive tax increases. Throwing more money at these schools isn't the solution. We've been doing that all along, and it's not working. We're failing Pennsylvania students. So the Lifeline proposal was just one of many ideas that are out there to, you know, provide that Lifeline to these students, get them out of these failing school districts, and give them a real chance. Because you're right, education is the great equalizer. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, you know, for folks, one of the things, the complaints that you were hearing were from the, the, the other side, the left, who was rejecting, you know, these scholarships because they're terrified, terrified. That uh, these kids, these these alternatives, these kids may receive a, a good education in a public schools. Okay, um, the, their argument is that we're diverting money from public education. We're taking money away from public education, but that's not the truth. Tell us how much did you increase basic funding for education? And in addition, didn't you propose and provide a hundred million dollars for what they call level up to try to go directly to these bottom 15% of schools? 
That's exactly right. There are so many different avenues for this money to flow. One is in the basic education funding line, BEF line. Uh, that had, I think, a 6% increase in it. The level up funding was increased. The Senate proposed, uh, you know, re- renaming the lifeline to pass, but they were actually taking that $100 million from PIT. So none of it, not a dime, was coming away from our public education system. That's a, that's a, a misnomer. I actually introduced I did introduce as an amendment, and I introduced it as a standalone. Um, but I said, hey, if we have this Johnstown flood tax out there that's just going into the general fund, a hundred-year-old uh, emergency tax that was enacted after the Johnstown flood, why don't we use some of that instead of you know instead of the PIT? We don't want to increase taxes on you know every everybody, uh, which is you know essentially what we would need to do at some point in time. But I think. The message that's out there is we're taking away money from public schools, and it is 100% false. Oh, absolutely. And, and for folks that are listening, let me give you some shocking numbers. For this year, the 2022-2023 budget for the Pittsburgh Public Schools is $675.9 million. Again, $675.9 million. Their enrollment is only 18,660 kids spread across their 58 buildings. That's an average spend per student of $36,221.86. Folks, $36,221.86. And what's their reading proficiency? I mean, most of the city of Pittsburgh schools are in the bottom 15% 15% are performing school districts or schools, okay? Uh, we absolutely need to do something about education here and what the folks are doing today by just re- redirecting every year more money to the same failing schools to produce the same failing results or leaving generations of students behind. And we can no longer afford to allow that to happen. So I appreciate all the fighting but you're doing up in Harrisburg, Natalie, on behalf of these kids that are in these school districts. And just to add on to the Pittsburgh public school, some of the statistics, like their graduation rate is around 70%. So when you think about that amount of money, that much of an increase, and then a graduation rate of 70%, the reading proficiency, bottom tier, bottom tier of you know every ranking out there, like where is the money being spent? We should be focused on the students, not the schools, and not the teachers' unions. Absolutely. Look, I, I have nothing against public schools, you know, but I, I, the reason why we pay taxes is to educate kids, okay? So, you know, I believe if we took and put these things in place, two things are going to happen. One, we're going to give parents the choice to send their kids to a school that's going to educate them and because the parents care more about their children than any legislator does. And then two... Okay, the underperforming schools will be forced to improve because if not, then they'll cease to have any students there, okay? And and we know that they're not going to allow that to happen, right? But right now, there is no incentive for them to do anything. What's the incentive? How are they being held accountable? They're not. There's a lack of competition out there. Um, They're the only gig in town in many cases, and it's really unfortunate for our students in those districts. 
And I'm a, a huge fan of public education. I'm a product of it myself. I have three kids enrolled in public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just a matter of these failing school districts. And we've, you know, traveled around the Commonwealth. Um, you know, many of the legislators that serve on various committees related to education. And you get to talk to some of these parents of the kids that are in these failing school districts. And it is jarring to hear their stories and the things that are going on. And these are the parents that are, you know, very much engaged. They have massive wait lists for some of the charter schools out there. Um, and in many cases, that's really the only option to get them out of the failing district is for these charter schools. And it's, it's done by a lottery, as you know. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when they, when they don't win the lottery, um, it's devastating because right. they know they're, they're stuck. There's no way out. And this lifeline would have been a way out for many of them. Right. And, and again, you know, an education is the key. It's the ticket you know, to a better future. And the folks that are denying these kids these opportunities are denying these children a better future, and they should be ashamed of themselves. Very unfortunate state of affairs, and I don't know if or when we will be able to actually get this policy signed into law. I don't know if it'll be under this governor or if those kids are just going to be you know, missing opportunities here for the you know next seven years to come. Well, Nat, you know, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of things going on. I mean, I was told here, or rumor, you know, I ta- you know, I have a lot of friends on both sides of the aisle. You know, in my role as a legislator, you have to work with everybody. And, you know, just as you do, we, we work with our colleagues, regardless of whether they're Republican or Democrat, to try to serve our constituents. So I have a lot of friends on both sides of the aisle. And, uh, you know, I was told this past week, rumor was going around, that uh, with this one-vote majority they have, I mean, there were rumors that uh, this past Wednesday that Sarah Inamorata was going to announce her resignation for the Pennsylvania House, and uh, that would create a tie. And then I was also told there's a Democrat legislator from out east who's won his election as a district judge and is also looking to resign. So the Democrats are potentially looking at coming back, you know, in January with a— uh, you know, actually being in the minority. So now they're trying to scramble and figure out how they can take in time all of this to, you know, pick the time for special elections to try to maintain this majority uh, instead of worrying about just serving the people, you know? And again, I think the frustrating thing for me or for any of our listeners is that they, yes, they have a majority. They have a one seat majority, and if you shared, you know, it, they, they themselves recognize it as a humble majority. <clears throat> so why was it a my way or the highway position that they took and rejected the governor's compromise, you know, to hold fast to this and say, absolutely not, we're not helping these kids. And I know you don't have the answer to that, but it's just a question that our folks should be asking the next time they go to the voting booth. You know, should I be voting for these folks who – say they care, but yet their actions show that they don't care enough. Yeah, and, and just a comment on that. Unfortunately, Sam, we we started off the session in a very similar position to what you described could be potentially happening in January, where there's a couple of uh, vacant seats, so to speak. So when we began this legislative session back in January of 23, we actually had the numbers for the majority. The problem was we had a few people on our side of the aisle that were willing to cut a deal 
with the Democrats and handicap the rest of the Republican caucus. And that was really our opportunity to get anything done at the beginning of the session. But even though we had the numbers with the R's next to their name, we didn't have everybody together, everybody on the same page, because we had a couple of rogue agents out there that were, you know, just looking for personal accomplishments, I guess, uh, rather than staying unified with the caucus so we could actually get something done. Yes. I, I mean, I, I, I can... I understand your frustration. You and I frequently talk and you update me on the things that are going on in Harrisburg. And uh, this is something that uh, you've wrestled with since the beginning of the term. You know, how do we get Republicans to get on the same page? You know, especially when you have something where the balance of power, so to speak, is so tight. It's critical that we do so to advance our agenda. And if if that, you know, there was a lone Republican, there was a Republican from out in uh, Harrisburg, Dolphin County, if he would have stuck with the Republicans, you guys would have been able to get voter ID, you know, on the ballot for a referendum here in May. And this is a chance we've probably lost, you know, mm-hmm. for the foreseeable future, you know, because of that. And how huge would that have been to be in the technical minority and still get voter ID? I think about that all the time. And and something that I say, I find myself saying on a daily basis and sometimes more than once a day is Republicans win when we stick together. We just have, we have to remember that we have two big elections this year in Allegheny County Republicans win when we stick together. And I think in that vein, Natalie, I think it's important we share with our listeners, you know, exactly what goes on in Harrisburg. Now you alluded to just a little bit ago that, uh, you know, for the last number of days of the session, last weeks of the session, Democrats were just throwing bills up against the wall that they knew weren't going to go anywhere. Okay. But it was all, they were designed to force the legislators such as yourself to take positions on these bills solely for them to try to use in elections, okay? And what they're trying to do is split our legislators from their base, okay? So it's important that Republicans or our listeners out there today understand what's going on and don't overreact to something that they hear. I mean, if you have a question about a particular vote, I urge you to call your legislator's office, you know, and ask, and either their staff or themselves will get back to you. You know, and are happy to explain it to you, or you know, shed more light on it. But uh, you know, I know they're they're throwing anti-gun legislation out. I mean, I mean, uh, look, uh, let me ask you this: um, they were crowing about passing this uh, anti-discrimination on crowns, talking about basically uh, hairstyles. Okay, and we dealt with that at the county level as well. How many people came before you testifying that they were discriminated against because of their hairstyle? Well, that's just the thing. These bills aren't being vetted. They're not going through the proper process. Like when you do have a legislative idea, you take it to a committee. You do a hearing. You meet people that have been affected by it. You make sure that this is you know something we want to enact in Pennsylvania law. And that's part of the legislative process and part of the reason that it takes so long to get anything done is because you want to vet these ideas and do things the right way. Mm-hmm. No, nobody, the, the short answer to your question, none. Right. And I mean, look, we already have legislation that, you know, bans discrimination in any and all forms. Okay. It's just crazy that, you know, that that doesn't seem to be enough that the left takes to take, has to break out every potential form of discrimination and not only do you have the legislation that bans it in all forms, that's law today, okay? But the, you have to pass a separate bill 
to address all that. I guess it's just busy work, so to speak, to try to make the people back home think that they're actually doing something. It, it, it's busy work. It you know takes our focus away from the actual budget process when we're voting on literally dozens of bills a day that you've had no time to prepare for. Um, and then, you know, they're using a lot of procedural tricks. Like if we do, you know, have a worthy of amendment, um, you know, something that could make the bill better. They're using all sorts of procedural tricks to rule those motions out of order, amendments out of order, wh- whatever they can do. But the other side of it is, well, now they can go and do a mailer. I was, you know, one of the no votes on that bill. Mm-hmm. I think Re- Republicans may have been unified in that. I, I can't remember because we voted on so many bills. Um, but now they can say, oh, Representative Mihalik is a racist. She voted against this. And that's what they'll cite on, you know, whatever right. mailer is, is likely to come at me next November. Um, but that's that's what they're doing. They're setting themselves up for campaign season, which is right around the corner. And it always is in a, in a two-year term. And they've done, you know, a lot of the bills for our, you know, many suburban representatives we have in Allegheny County, um, those, I guess, text messages and, you know, some like campaign opportunities they seized upon and they've already started, you know, beating the drum on these votes that we know aren't going to be brought up in the Senate and they're just meant to put us in a bad position, pit us against our base and pit us against any crossover votes that we might get from the Democrats in our districts. Folks, you're hearing it directly from Representative Natalie Mihalik of the 40th Legislative House District here. And Natalie, we're, I, I, I hope you can stay for our second segment. We're going to have to take a break here, sort of pay the bills. Uh, this is Sam DeMarco from the Elephant in the Room on WJAS, 1320 AM. Stick around, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks, to the Elephant in the Room. We're joined here in studio by John Schneider, our executive director, Daryl Grandy, our producer, and joined on the phone by State Representative Natalie Mihalik of the 40th Legislative House District here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Natalie, thank you for sticking around for the second segment. You know, I I spent a lot of time in the first segment sort of trying to talk about what was going on in Harrisburg, you know, in regards to uh, what the Democrats in the majority in the House are doing in regards to the budget, education, and how they're just putting up a a bunch of um, position bills you know, for campaign season, as you alluded to in the last segment. But I know that something was important to you as a former assistant district attorney here in Allegheny County is the crime situation that we have here, the increase in crime in the city and how it is bleeding into the suburbs. You know, what are you hearing from the folks in your district? Yeah, I mean... And nobody's immune to it right now. I mean, this is happening everywhere. It's happening nationwide. uh, And it's a real shame that what's happening right here at home. So just to sort of tie everything together, the House Republicans had an initiative just this session. And we started communicating this to our constituents because this is what we were hearing from our constituents. So this was our, you know, four-pronged commitment. We call it the Keystone Commitment to all of our constituents in all of our districts. And that was a thriving economy, affordable living, child-first, family-focused education, and safe communities. Because all across the Commonwealth, you're seeing an uptick in crime, you're seeing an uptick in violent crime, uh, and it's really created this precarious situation for many of our residents. Well, and Natalie, let me share some folks, uh, some statistics with our listeners here so they understand a little bit of what's going on, okay? In the city of Pittsburgh, back in the mid-90s, 
You know, the last time we had major increases in crime, the Clinton administration and the government, the Congress, allocated a significant amount of federal funds for departments across the country to hire more officers. So in the mid-90s, the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police actually had about 1,700 officers on the street. As of today, that number is only 774, okay? As late as, early, as, far, as, late as March of 2020, in March of 2020, folks, there was a class in the academy, and together with the class in the academy, the officers on the street, they had 1,000 officers in the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police. Now they're down to 774, okay? Statistics show us that for every 10% increase in officers, you get a 13% in, de, excuse me, 13% decrease in violent crime and a 7% decrease in property crime. Folks, there's no other reason. Well, there's a number of other reasons, but I mean, there's no bigger factor for the rise in crime than the decrease in officers on the street to deter uh, and to uh, prosecute or to arrest these folks that are committing these crimes. You know, when we couple that here in Allegheny County, <clears throat> we couple that with uh, judges who have been cowed by the left's criminal justice reform. You got to have compassion to put these people back out on the street. You know, you have the left demanding criminal justice reform, no cash bail. You know, this is a it's a disaster in waiting. In Allegheny County, one of the things that we're seeing, Natalie, is much of this violent crime is being committed by folks who are juveniles. You know, it's, it's, it's going down from an age perspective. Schumann Center is not open. I, mean, I, had a, I had a conversation with members of the administration yesterday. They've told me that they have progress. They've made progress. They've had the folks go through there doing the designs. They're talking about potentially bringing members of council back out there. <clears throat> so it needs to be reopened, but it can't open reopen soon enough because we have nowhere to send these juveniles now who are committing these serious crimes. That's right. And I, you and I have talked about the closing of the Schumann Center, which was something that Wolf, Governor Wolf, then Governor Wolf, I guess, uh, came in and did a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And we've been sending our juveniles to neighboring counties. Now some of those counties don't want to take them. And look, I'm, I think that when we talk about criminal justice reform, depending on who's saying it, it means something totally different. Right. So I've, I've personally worked on probably a dozen or, or more pieces of legislation at this point uh, having to do with criminal justice reform, some dealing directly with our juvenile justice system. Um, many of the recommendations that came out of the Juvenile Justice Task Force, I put into a proposal, uh, proposed legislation to improve our system. So does everybody belong in a juvenile system when they do something wrong and your kid, kids make, make mistakes? Mm-hmm. But there are some that are so serious and so violent that you have to have a place, a proper place for these juveniles to go. And then you have to have the proper systems in place on top of that to make sure they're continuing their education and they're doing all these other things while they're in placement so that they're, when they get out, they're not going to go back to the old ways. And, you know, same for, you know, those folks that are in our prison system. But it is an unbelievable increase just over the last three years. I think it's 30% increase in our homicide rate. Um, we've got drug abuse going up, the uh, suicide rate, divorce rate, all of these things. And then at the same time, you have a shortage of police to deal with all mm-hmm. of it. 
and to make those arrests and to prosecute to prosecute those offenders. And that's going to be something that's on the tip of everybody's tongue in Allegheny County when they're going to the voting booths uh, this November, at least I hope it will be. Because if you look at what's been going on in Philadelphia for the last several years under a very progressive district attorney there who refuses to make the arrest, refuses to prosecute when the arrests are being made, um, it's led to a, a huge spike in violence in the city of Philadelphia that has started to bleed out to some of their suburbs. And I'm afraid that's going to replicate on this side of the state. Well, yeah. And, and one of the things that, that he has in common is uh, uh, Larry Krasner, the district attorney of Philadelphia, is a George Soros-funded candidate. Okay, And you have here, chief public defender here, Matt Dugan, who's running to be the district attorney of Allegheny County, again, is a public defender and who is funded over 90% of his campaign by George Soros. And you only have to look across the country. I mean, you could look at San Francisco, Los Angeles, St. Louis, Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore, uh, everywhere where they have these Soros-funded prosecutors. These folks are not prosecuting crime. And, you know, you made a point earlier where you said, do you believe that every juvenile that commits a crime or makes a mistake deserves to be in the criminal justice system? You know, I would agree, you know, no. But I would say that if they commit a particularly violent crime or if they're repeat offenders, these folks need to be held accountable. And that's what's missing today. And that's what scares me. When you have candidates such as the candidate for district attorney here in Allegheny County talking about how he wants to choose how lower level crimes are prosecuted and what lower level crimes are being prosecuted, but shares nothing else other than that, I can only assume that he plans on implementing the policies that have been implemented by so many other Soros prosecutors across this nation, which have led to increased crime rates and a very significant decrease in the quality of life for the residents in those communities. I mean, it's bad for residents. It's bad for business. It's just, it's all very bad. And I want to go back to what you said about George Soros funding uh, this campaign locally, but also funding district attorney campaigns all across the United States for at least a dozen years, if not more than that. And if you look at some of the statistics coming out of the cities where a, a George Soros-backed district attorney is has been elected, the results are staggering. I mean, the numbers are staggering. The murder rates are out of this world. And it's a very scary proposition for the same thing to be happening right here in our, in our own backyard. So George Soros, uh, uh, when there's a, a backed uh, candidate from his PAC, when they're elected, they receive what's called a day one memo. And it's basically like, you will not prosecute the following types of crimes from someone in, in politics, directing a district attorney, wow. chief law enforcement of you know, whatever county they've wow. been elected in. Um, that in and of itself is very scary. And it's led to a lot of cities having this spike in crime, spike in violent crime, spike in homicides, and nobody's being held accountable. The district attorneys aren't being held accountable and the criminals aren't being held accountable. Uh, so it's a very scary proposition here in Allegheny County. And I, I wanted to put that out there uh, for the listeners because I think it's really important to know when you're going to the polls in November to know what you're getting. Yeah, and, and Natalie, to that point, uh, folks, we're going to, on a future show here, we're going to talk about a book 
that I just bought two copies of called Rogue Prosecutors, How Radical Soros Lawyers Are Destroying America's Communities. It's a book by Charles Stimson and Zach Smith. And what they're talking about there, they talk about how rogue prosecutors, you know, are taking and choosing not to prosecute many of these crimes. They're silencing victims and letting the criminals go and how it's leading to a significant decrease, again, in the safety of those communities and a decrease in quality of life. What's great about the book is it's broken out by each chapter, and each chapter talks about a specific prosecutor in the specific city and gives you the data and the statistics and the results. And, John, I saw you taking notes there. We're going to reach out to these folks and see if we can get them to appear on the show and to talk about this. Well, make sure I know when that show is because I, I would love to to hear directly from them. I think that our system as it is, even with a, a good prosecutor on its best day, I, th- I still think we just do a disservice to victims. Uh, they're oftentimes re-traumatized by coming into the courtroom. And this is something very near and dear to my heart that I've worked on since I got into the legislature, just from my experience in the district attorney's office and, and then in private practice, dealing with these victims on a daily basis. It really does have an effect on your outlook on our criminal justice system and how in America we have this you know, criminal first, defendant first mentality, victim last. And that's very unfortunate. And to add insult to injury, these prosecutors all across the country that don't want to prosecute when there's when especially when there is a victim uh, who wants to come to court and tell their story. So that's something that I've been working on personally. I've been able to just recently get a few wins, even with the minority status in the House of Representatives with some of the, I call it the Safer PA Act, um, but it was about seven different bills modeled off of some legislation in Michigan and then just modeled off of you know some of the things that I saw here firsthand in Pennsylvania to make that experience a little bit better for our victims. Yeah. And I, I mean, again, I can tell you that the crime, we talk about the city, you know, and, and that's easy. I mean, we just had someone, uh, you had a man shot and killed in the South Side uh, Sunday, you know, which was late Saturday night, early Sunday. You had a man stabbed in the chest at Liberty Avenue and 7th, you know, at 1.15 in the afternoon on Monday. You had an 18-year-old shoot and kill a 14-year-old here. I think that was on Tuesday, okay? I mean, you know, the crime is bad, but folks, what our listeners need to understand is it's not just in the city. You know, I attend, I regularly attend Allegheny County Chiefs of Police Association meetings, and I also have gone to some of the COG meetings where the Chiefs of Police get together and talk about what's happening in their communities, how to react to it, what they're trying to do. And all of them, without a, a, a doubt, talk about how crime from the city has bled over into the county. You know, in, in your commu- in your district, Natalie, Chief O'Connor has talked to me about how, you know, uh, this has bled into Bethel Park. And thankfully, Absolutely. Bethel Park has, has a great police force, you know, with a great leader. But, uh, you know, they're dealing with crime, you know, out there, and it's these folks from the city. They're just, the other day, you had uh, some kids from the city. They broke and stole a white Jeep out at the uh, waterworks in Fox Chapel. They took and drove that all the way to Bethel Park, where they were casing some places. They stole an identical white Jeep there. So they had the two white Jeeps, okay? But the lady happened to be up, heard the noise, called it into the police, the Bethel Park police, and the Castle Shannon police managed to pull these kids over. They took off running, 
you know, but they found inside the car all stolen credit cards, cash. You know, these folks are breaking into the vehicles and stuff out there. I mean, this crime is reaching out into the communities, and and, and we're not safe. You're exactly right, and I and I want to bring it all the way back to the first segment. As I wonder how many of those juveniles that we see engaging in this type of criminal behavior are from these failing school districts. Exactly. I mean, and, and when we talk about this, right? I mean, you know, we were all in school, okay. Now, some of us, you know, brilliant folks like yourself, you know, in the Navy's nuclear power program, you probably sailed through school, right? But challenged individuals like myself, you know, I know that you would get frustrated when you weren't understanding a particular subject or you weren't catching on to the lesson and sort of feeling left behind. I can only imagine how some of these kids feel, you know, when they've just been promoted from one grade to another but yet they're not able to take and uh, process, you know, the information and, that they're being taught and how they may feel like they have no other choice but to delve into some of this. For sure. And I, I can't imagine the frustration. I, I will share this with you. Mm-hmm. And this turned into a piece of legislation I've been working on for the last couple of years. Um, but I had the opportunity to go and visit a charter school in Pittsburgh, and they specialize in teaching students with learning disabilities, mainly dyslexia. Mm -hmm. And as I went, you know, to the school and I toured it and I got to meet some of the parents of the students there and they all had a very similar story. They had, you know, a child, normal childbirth, normal childlerhood. When you got to the age where you're reading to comprehend, they started acting out, cutting themselves, getting in trouble in school, just, you know, all these very destructive behaviors. And it turns out that, you know, child was dyslexic. And it's very hard to diagnose dyslexia. It is a process to do. The Department of Education in Pennsylvania doesn't do it. So they will diagnose some things in our public school system. Dyslexia is not on that list. Um, So I've been working for the last couple of years, actually, with the president of of that particular charter school. He's dyslexic himself and very passionate about the issue um, to just bring some awareness to the issue that, you know, if you have somebody that's repeatedly in trouble, like maybe they ought to go get a, a diagnosis somewhere. And I'm not saying everybody has something wrong with them, but more than half of prisoners in federal prisons are dyslexic, more than half. That's wow. a staggering number. In 2016, Congress passed what was called the First Step Act um, to actually get those statistics from our federal prison system and actually do something about it. So I'm trying to replicate that in our state system, um, and I'd eventually like to work on it as part of the you know juvenile uh, pieces of legislation that I've worked on as well. Because I think if we can get to those kids early enough, when they are frustrated, you know, they're in a failing school, they have a learning disability, they're not, they're just, they're frustrated. And they're going out and they're making very bad choices. And I think that we could really be onto something there just by those those numbers alone. And that's 50% in federal prisons. And the estimates that I've gotten for what it is in our juvenile justice system are much, much higher than 50%. It's in the 70s. Wow. And again, these, are, these statistics are the things that should form or should be able to build a bipartisan consensus, you know, on the need to really find a way to reach these kids, okay? And like you pointed out with some of the kids suffering from learning disabilities like dyslexia, okay? Uh, you know, these kids should be tr- should be uh, treated or handled, you know, in a slightly different way to ensure that they're learning instead of being stuck in the same class, you know, with others where they may not be able to keep up 
or to be able to learn at the same rate. Now, you know, that's one of the issues, okay? Uh, we also know that kids that you hear the left talk about, now they want, to continue, they want to serve kids more meals in schools, okay? And Governor Wolf is out talking about that. Now every child can have a paid lunch, or, and I think they already get paid breakfasts, okay? <clears throat> Summer Lee was out there talking about she was mad because I didn't support giving them paid dinners as well, okay? But yet they won't do anything about the safety of the kids in school. I mean, you just had two children killed in the last two years at Oliver High School here in the city. And what do we have on June 29th, June 28th, I guess it was, Pittsburgh School Board, they met and they decided that they were going to stop issuing summary citations to students that disrupt class, misbehave, or things like that, don't show up with truancy because they felt they were being disproportionately used and were affecting uh, you know, students of color more than anything else. And I think here is another huge problem where we make everything about race, okay? And it should be, I don't care what color you are. Red, green, yellow, rainbow, it doesn't matter. If you misbehave, get a citation, you know? If you're green, you know, you don't come to school on time, you get a citation, okay? But again, our failure to hold the kids that are disrupting class accountable is only doing a disservice to the kids that are there to actually learn, and we're just setting them back. It's just, you, you, you can't make this stuff up, Natalie, but at every step, when adults, supposed adults that are in the room, have an opportunity to try to help these kids, they walk away from it. The only answer is send more money. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes those citations could be the opportunity. Okay, you get a, issued a citation. It doesn't mean you're going to placement. It doesn't mean you're going to jail or getting a fine. But you are going to have to come before you know whoever issued it. I, right, the judicial body, if it's the school administration, and that's their opportunity to discuss with that student and potentially the parent. You know what is going on? Why can you? not come to school on time? Why are you not coming to school? Why are you disrupting class? All of these things and get to the bottom of it and actually help the students. Yeah, you, you'll see things on social media. Listeners, you may have seen things on social media talking about teachers leaving the workforce, you know, walking away from teaching uh, because they just had enough. And as usual, you know, the typical folks, the union folks, uh, well, they, they need more money. Okay, we need to increase the pay. And when really one of the reasons cited was the lack of respect that the teachers get in the classrooms today and what they believe is a perceived lack of support from the administration, you know, in addressing these. I mean, you know, my wife is a teacher. Most of the teachers I know, okay, are dedicated servants who who really care about their kids and really want to teach them. But it's hard to do that when things get in the way, okay? And when you have students who disrupt the class, whether they want to be the jokesters or whether they're, you know, fighting or carrying on, whatever it may be, all they do is they set back the other students, the kids who are really there to learn and are looking for that opportunity to get out. No, you're, you're exactly right. And to just bring it back to our earlier discussion on our education system and some of these failing school districts, just you know, really talk about the teachers here for a second because oftentimes they're caught in the middle of all of this you know, partisan fighting and with the scholarships and all these various school districts. But you're right, most of them are there to teach the kids to make a difference. I know there, you know, I can think of a handful of teachers that made a difference in my life. I mean, they really are the ones who help Mm -hmm. to shape the person that you're become. And it is so important that we don't leave them out of the conversation completely. 
Because no. I think that that oftentimes happens when we're, you know, talking about these failing school districts. It's oftentimes not a failure of the teachers themselves, but the administration that wants a new building and new fresh paint and all these things that aren't going to help educate students themselves. Well, when I was in uh, in my previous life here, before becoming immersed in politics and, you know, these sorts of things, you know, I was in sales. And one of the things I saw was business process outsourcing, okay? And, uh, you know, one of the things I always believed and learned was that the people closest to the problem are the ones best positioned to tell you what the solution to that problem is. And it seems like, to your point, Natalie, that these the teachers who know most what they need to effectively teach their kids are left out of these conversations. Now, we only have three minutes left. I want to give you the opportunity in these three minutes. What would you like our listeners to know about Representative Natalie Mihalik and how they might be able to help you if you need any help? Oh, well, I really appreciate that opportunity. And it's been a pleasure to, to talk with you and your team uh, for the last couple of segments here. So I, I represent the 40th Legislative District. It's Bethel Park. It's now half of Upper St. Clair, the lower half, and it's also Peters Township in Washington County. So I straddle two counties. It's oftentimes hard to keep up with both counties and everything that's going on on a local level. So if there is something you see and you happen to be in my district or even just nearby, you know, please feel free to reach out. I'm always available. I love taking constituent meetings, constituent calls. I love to know what's going on here locally because oftentimes I'm away in session. Um, sometimes twiddling my thumbs, sometimes voting on a hundred bills at the same time. Uh, you never know, but because we're, we spend so much time away from the district, just maintaining that relationship with it is oftentimes difficult unless you have people that are out there willing to say, you know, Hey, this is going on at the township level. And I just wanted to let you know. So I'm, I'm always, uh, you know, willing and able and ready to take your ideas and understand a little bit more of what's going on locally from your perspective. So please feel free to reach out if you have ideas. If something is just not right and you think it needs a legislative fix, please call. I have, I'm working on something right now. There was uh, an incident that happened a couple of years ago in Washington County with a boat dock and uh, unfortunate accident uh, where a young man drowned uh, because of the electricity running through a, a nearby marina. And it was something that I had not heard about. I got to talk to the family and you know some of the witnesses that were there. Now we're turning that into a, a piece of legislation that will hopefully help prevent accidents like that in the future. So it doesn't matter what, you know where the idea comes from. If you have something like that or an experience, I'm all ears because I'm looking to produce quality pieces of legislation, not ramming 100 bills while we're supposed to be doing the budget and all the silliness that's been going on in Harrisburg lately. I'm here to make a difference in however many uh, terms the 40th district is willing to grant me. Well, Natalie, I can tell you that we appreciate all the hard work that you do in Harrisburg. I know the people, the constituents of the 40th legislative district appreciate it as well. Uh, folks, time always flies when we're talking to great folks like Natalie and our other guests. And uh, Natalie, we're going to have to go. But hey, I want to welcome you back to the show in the future. And uh, you know, anytime you would like to talk to our listeners and let them know issues that are important or things that you think that they need to be aware of, please just let us know. You're always welcome back on the show. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Sam. Folks, that's it. Till next week, signing off. This is Sam DeMarco, host of The Elephant in the Room on WJAS. 1320 AM and 99.1 FM Talk.